0: Well, today is Trinity Sunday, and uh, we have been working through the Gospel of John, and the Gospel of John is perhaps the richest, most directly, most expressly, Trinitarian Gospel. But I didn't want to jump ahead to the passages in John where the Trinity is most clearly seen. So, Lord willing, we'll return to the Gospel of John next week. But for today, our text is the New Testament reading from the book of Romans, the New Testament reading from Romans chapter 8. It may not appear at first, but this is a standard classical historical reading for Trinity Sunday. It's a Trinitarian text all the way down. There are, if you will, two ways to approach the Trinity. One is we could talk about the Trinity as he exists, as God exists in his own being and life. That's a difficult topic, though it is the destiny of Christians to contemplate it. But the other, which is more accessible and which we will do today, is to speak of the Trinity as the triune God embraces us and impacts us in his light and love and glory. And that's what uh, this Romans 8 text does, which is why it's traditionally in the lectionary for Trinity Sunday. So I'm going to make three points here. They're on the back inside page of your bulletin. Liberty, sonship, and inheritance. So first, liberty, or perhaps victory. Liberty, victory. Paul begins here by saying that we're debtors. We have an obligation not to the flesh to live according to the flesh. And flesh here means not simply body. Scripture does not despise the human body It doesn't view it as evil. Flesh here means sort of like the whole order of things as it is bent and turned away from God, which manifests itself often through our bodies. So it refers to the human person as fallen and belonging to this order of things. We owe the flesh nothing, Paul says in verse 13, because if we live our lives in accordance with the flesh, There's this certain judgment in the text. It says we will die. We'll be separated from God. We'll face his justice. And so in contrast to this, right, Paul says in the second half of verse 13, But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. Notice, something has to be put to death. We don't often think of the Holy Spirit as an executioner. But he is. And Paul's language here implies that every Christian person is locked into a kind of mortal combat. So Paul sees sin both as a kind of violation of God's law, but he also sees it as this malignant, monstrous power which seeks to oppress and enslave us. And so either sin will triumph, or God in Christ through the Spirit shall liberate you. By the way, that's the whole Trinitarian nub of this first point of the sermon. God in Christ through the Spirit shall liberate you. But there's this warfare. And there's no placing this combat on hold. There's no resigning from it. There's There's no days off from it. There's no being discharged. And there's nobody who's attained some level or plateau where they can coast. But notice this as well. There are no stalemates or draws in it. The Christian life is thus a thousand daily crucifixions. That's his shape. Calvin speaks of the Christian life as a perpetual cross. And we're prone to forget this. There is nothing grim in this, as we shall see. We are happy warriors, but we'll get to that in a couple of minutes. But for now, I want you to see this. It is either kill or be killed. And so Paul says here, he calls us all to put to death, to execute the deeds of the body, the sin that takes residence in our members. So, it's as if you wield the Holy Spirit as a weapon against the sin that is interior to you. And this is something we actively do, but it's really important to see it's not a mere human achievement. By the Spirit, by the Spirit, put to death the misdeeds or the deeds of the body. And so by, you, you are, in a sense, to take up the Holy Spirit and become the executioner of sin in your own life. The Spirit is the instrument for slaughtering, for killing, for executing sin. It fastens sin in our lives to the gallows where Jesus Christ hangs in our place. There's a kind of ruthlessness to this language. Now, Paul's assuming something here. He's already covered it elsewhere in Romans, but it's crucial that we don't let it drop out of sight. He's assuming this. He's assuming That Christ has destroyed sin and its power already in his cross and in his resurrection. And that you, you have been united to him in his death and resurrection by the spirit, sealed in baptism. This is why Paul can say in Galatians that those who belong to Christ Jesus have already crucified the flesh and its passions. So it's very important to see this, that what what Paul calls us to in the Romans text, our text, is not some additional work. He's calling you to simply appropriate what is signified to you in baptism, what God has already done in Christ. So the Christian life is, is not, Jesus has done something great for you, now try and be disciplined and live accordingly. Right. Try and respond appropriately. It is this. It is our lives being drawn into the mystery of his death and resurrection. This is why we can be happy warriors. If you ignore this battle, you might sort of kind of have a sort of happiness, but you won't be a warrior. And if you don't fight this battle on the ground that Christ has already fought... You'll be some sort of warrior, but you won't be happy. So this means, and this is a common place in the Christian tradition, beloved. This means for us, Christian existence is a continual mortification or putting to death and a, a continual vivification or quickening or being made alive with Christ, so that the Jesus is cross his death and resurrection are not just something which happened way back there and which you sort of have some sort of contact with here but they're the continual shape of your own existence you die and you're raised you die and you're raised perpetually every day all day that's the very shape and the mystery of christian purification and christian transfiguration christian sanctification So, that is important because it means Jesus' own death and his resurrection for us. They are the secret, mysterious power, the divine provision for your liberation. You cannot be liberated from the power of sin by pulling yourself up by the bootstraps or by doubling down and tripling down on your own efforts. You must be drawn into the mystery and the event of his own death and resurrection. And that's what this text is about. You know, it's interesting, right? You might ask, I'm sure some of you are, well, what are the exact dynamics, the mechanics of this? I mean, how come, you know, Paul doesn't tell us, does he? It's somewhat tantalizing. Paul doesn't say, now exactly how you do this is as follows. Step A, step B, step C, step D. But I think practically we can say it looks something like this. We are to take our sinful tendencies, our temptations, get them out of the open And we are to look or lay hold of somehow the spirit of God. And we are to count or reckon or consider ourselves dead to that sin. Right There's a sort of interior dynamic here where you work this text out in your own consciousness. Where you say to sin, I, through the spirit, execute you. I put you to death in the death. I died in Christ's death. That is you being joined to Christ's death continually. By the spirit, by a kind of holy ruthlessness, we direct sin to where it has already been put to death. We're not fighting on any independent grounds, beloved. We are fighting on the grounds that Jesus has already won on. Right? And you can win there. You can be changed there. You can be transformed there. If by the spirit you put to death sin in the body, you will live. You will be made alive even as he was made alive to God the Father. So let me give an expanded paraphrase of verse 13, try and tease it out a little bit. If by the Holy Spirit you put to death, you unite to the cross of Jesus the misdeeds, your own sins, the misdeeds of the body, you shall then, through the resurrection of Jesus, live, even as he did, unto God the Father. That is the Trinitarian form and shape of Christian liberty and your own victory in Christ. God the Father, in Christ the Son, through the Spirit, liberated and is liberating you and shall liberate you. But we must. We are called then to embrace this Trinitarian shape of Christian existence. So, the second point, and by the way, you'll notice, all three of these points are just three angles on the same point. The second point is sonship. Look at verse 14. Romans 8, verse 14. For those who are led by the Spirit of God, these are the children of God. I've always felt that this is a a crucial verse in clearing up a lot of confusion. To be led by the Spirit here is not to have a mystical sense of the Spirit telling you what to do. It has little to do with the way some speak of the Spirit leading them. right? The context here requires that when we think of being led by the Spirit, we are to think of of, of being people who use the power of the Spirit to put to death the deeds of the flesh. That's what Paul means. So where you have a Christian person struggling by grace to walk in holiness, you have a Christian being led by the Spirit. You have a son or a daughter, a child of God. And in this sense, all God's children are led by the Spirit. To be led by the Spirit is to be a person who, by the Spirit, puts to death the deeds of the flesh. But it tends to get, you know, transmuted into some sort of mystical feelings and senses about the Holy Spirit saying this or that to you. That's just not how Paul uses the phrase led by the Spirit. It is to be led into the mystery of Jesus' death and resurrection and transfigured by that mystery. And this sonship, this being children of God, is further elucidated in verse 15 in the text. It's... It says here that the Holy Spirit brings about our adoption to sonship. This is a beautiful picture. The the language here is is that you have the full rights that a male heir would have in a Roman society, a Roman culture. So, what is going on in the Christian life? Through the Holy Spirit uniting us to the Son, we become sons we become children of God, the Father. It's a beautiful thing Then you obtain all the rights, all the privileges of access, all of the blessings of the household of God by the Spirit uniting you to Christ, you are a child of God. J.I. Packer says that it is the heart of your Christian experience and existence to call God Father. He says you can sort of test, you can sort of have a thermostat for the the fire and level of your devotion attached to the kind of affection and centrality there is in your life about calling the creator of heaven and earth your own Father through Jesus Christ. And that, there's a sort of Trinitarian simplicity and beauty to this that I want you to see here at a very basic level of being a child of God, right? The Spirit unites us to Christ the Son and we too become sons and daughters, children of the Father, right? To say Christian is to say Trinitarian. To say child of God is to speak the language of the Holy Trinity, to call God Father, So, whether we can understand this, because it does get complex, or whether we can articulate it or not, right, this glorious reality that you are a child of God, that you are embraced in the life and the love, and believe, it's, it's just not simply being embraced in the life and light of God, but being embraced in the orderly trinitarian light and life of god this is something which surrounds and defines your christian existence at every moment even if you may never even use the word trinitarian the beauty of the trinity is not that we understand the mystery of the trinity but that the trinity in condescending love and mercy has come and made you a child of god the spirit has united you to the son so you can call upon the father So, notice Paul said sort of two things about the Spirit in our text. The Spirit unites us to Jesus' death and resurrection so you can put sin to death. That's the first point. But he also brings you in and through Jesus to the Father. So that you can cry out, Abba, Father. That's the second point in the sermon. Of course, we know Abba is an Aramaic word used by children to address their parents. And it was a remarkable thing that Jesus uses it in Mark's gospel to address the God of Israel. Now here, I'll say something. Maybe this is surprising for some. I don't know. But the word does not mean daddy. That's commonly asserted. It's just the Aramaic word for father. Adult Jews of Jesus' age would have called their parents Abba. So little children, yes, would have called their father Abba. But big children like me would have called our father Abba. It's just the Aramaic word for father. Daddy is, in fact, too casual a word. It can border on presumption and irreverence. God is our father But he's a transcendent father. That's why the Lord's Prayer starts with, Our Father who art in heaven. Nevertheless, nevertheless, there is a warmth and an intimacy in the address. Right? And it was the use of it by Jesus, which, from which it bled into the use in the Christian church. So, you know what's even more wonderful than Jesus using this word? Is that you can take this same word by the Spirit on your lips, right? And call God, Abba, Father. So, this is, this is Trinitarian adoption, beloved, right? It is to address the creator of heaven and earth, the God and Father of the Lord Jesus Christ, with this intimate word, Abba father you know of course in the in the rough and tumble of life we sort of just talk to god in general a lot but we never really are just talking to god in general right we are in the spirit through the son talking to the father more sort of a more uh, formal way of putting it and that gets us to this reality of crying abba father in the spirit Luther has a wonderful comment on this, about this word father here. He says, this is a little word, yet it comprehends all things. The mouth speaks not, but the affection of the heart speaks after this manner. Right, this is a visceral word. He says, although I'm oppressed with anguish and terror, and I seem to be forsaken and utterly cast away from thy presence, yet I am thy child, and thou art my father for Christ's sake. And he continues, Luther continues, he says, wherefore this little word, father, conceived with affection in the heart, he says, passes all the eloquence of Demosthenes and Cicero and the most eloquent rhetoricians that ever were in the world. It's the most eloquent The highest, the purest, the grandest kind of simplicity is in this word. And this is the heart, the deeply Trinitarian heart of your Christian life, to, by the Spirit, in union with Jesus the Son, call his Father your Father. You know, it's even better than that. It's even better than that, because... It means that we are, by this Spirit, brought into the mutual love that exists between the Father and the Son. God the Father does not shower a different kind of love on you than He has for Jesus, the Son. He brings you into that intimate communion of love and pours that love on you. And from our side, it's even better as well. It means that you can begin now Right? To love the father as the son loves him. And to be loved by the father as he loves the son. So that's sonship. The third point is inheritance. Again, these are, as I said, three ways of looking at the same mystery. So we know salvation is already, right. we have salvation, and it's also not yet. It's a present reality but it also has a future consummation. Paul's going to say just a little bit later in this chapter, in fact, that we're waiting for our adoption, the redemption of our bodies. He just talked about how we're adopted children, but he will then say we're nevertheless waiting. And so to taste the light and the life of the Holy Trinity is to yearn or to groan or to wait eagerly for the end. You get a glimpse of this logic here in the text. Look at verse 17. If we are children, then we are heirs. Heirs of God, co-heirs of Christ. If we are children, then we're heirs. That means we're going to come into the possession of all that God has for his children. Because we're children, and children inherit. You have this grand inheritance before you. Ultimately, of course, God himself is our inheritance. But all things in the renewed cosmos that are Christ's inheritance are your inheritance. But when you look at the back end of the book of Revelation, chapter 21 and 22, it pictures the eternal state as one where the central feature is his servants shall see his face. Face to face communion with the Holy Trinity in glory in the city of God. But this has always been the aspiration of God's people this inheritance, which is God Himself. David says in Psalm 73, right, famously, Whom have I in heaven but thee? And besides thee, there is none on the earth that I desire. My flesh and my heart, they fail. But God is the strength of my heart, my portion. That's the word for inheritance. My inheritance forevermore. How does this occur? How do you get this inheritance? Well, you can see it in this little phrase. We're joint heirs with Christ. We're sons with the Son, but we're also joint heirs with the one who will inherit all things. Everything that Jesus is destined to inherit, you will inherit jointly with him. Isn't that glorious? The ability to call God Father? Well, first, the ability to put sin to death so you can live and call God Father and have this inheritance. These are all the mighty works of the Holy Trinity in us. I want to notice a couple of things here in closing. Um, notice this in the text. The spirit, which makes us sons or children of God, is also called elsewhere by Paul. The spirit is called the down payment or the earnest or the pledge of your inheritance. So you have a foretaste, a down payment of this inheritance now. That's why you cry out, Abba, Father. That's why you yearn for the glory which is to come. So even your inheritance, beloved, is fully Trinitarian. The Spirit comes and makes you a joint heir with the Son. And as a child, then, you inherit all the riches that the Father wants to bestow on his children. You have a Trinitarian inheritance. Yet there's a condition here in the text. Notice that. Paul started out by saying... You're in a war. You have to put to death the deeds of the body. And here he returns to the ongoing battles of life. You can see it in the text. He says, if indeed we suffer with him. If indeed we suffer. We have all these things. If indeed we suffer with him. That we may also be glorified with him. Suffering precedes glory. As it was for the Lord, so it is for us. There's no skirting around this. Heirs are called to suffer. But you know what? Just like everything else in the Christian life, when you start to see it this way, this is not something isolated that we do, or an addition to Jesus' work. Right? Notice the text says, we share in his sufferings. You have to take your sufferings and unite them to Jesus' sufferings. right? You are being mysteriously drawn in your misery and in your anguish and in your distress and in your abandonment and in your desolation and in your pain into the mystery of his own sufferings. Here's a beautiful thing, whether you know it or feel it, whether it seems real to you or not, Jesus is not only in your sufferings or with you in your sufferings, he's underneath your sufferings, right Your sufferings are drawn into the mystery of his suffering. Even your sufferings are Trinitarian. They're conformity to his death that we might know the power of his resurrection. So this text opened by saying, you have to put to death the spirit by the spirit, put to death sin. That's to suffer, beloved. Right? That's painful and hard in this age. But we're not morbid, right? Paul's going to go on to tell us that the sufferings of this present age are not worthy to be compared with the glory that shall be revealed. And with that, we heartily agree. The glory that is to be revealed to you is first the glory of Trinitarian liberty. So let me urge you, by the Spirit, execute the deeds of the flesh that you might live. And the glory awaiting you is second, the glory of Trinitarian sonship. And so I exhort you, cry out, Abba, Father, in every state of life. For in Jesus you have access to, you have intimacy with this God as Father. And the glory awaiting us is finally the glory of Trinitarian inheritance. I want to encourage you, don't let your inheritance drop out of sight. You're joint heirs with Christ, and the apostolic scriptures say that glory is worth suffering for. All the sufferings of this age, think of that, are not even worthy to be compared to the glory which is to be. For the glory which is to be means the triune God himself in the renewed cosmos will be your life and light and portion. This is your destiny. As children of God, glory be to the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, one God and three persons. Amen.